Let's open the precious word of God inspired and preserved by God to the gospel of John and the 15th chapter. We have started this morning already reminding ourselves of the importance of the apostles. We want to see their glory in the final stages of their preparation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see his compassionate and tender care of them as he comforts and encourages them to the work before them. They should have been comforting him. He had a right to be sorrowful in heart. Their persecution and death was many years and decades away. His was moments away, minutes and hours. Let us rejoice in this history given to us by our brother John, our beloved brother John in this gospel. I want to read what we covered last Lord's Day all the way down through verse 7 of chapter 16. I trust the King James Bible. Even in those features of it that are not directly inspired but preserved by God, such as chapter breaks. The chapter break between 15 and 16, you know, we could say leaves a little bit to be desired, but I trust it. But I want to read through it so that you can see that it's one lesson about persecution that extends from 15 and verse 18 down through 16 and 7. So beginning at John 15 and verse 18, hopefully verses that you read last evening, but it never hurts us to hear the word of God and to think upon it again. John 15 at verse 18. Jesus to his apostles on the road to Bethany from Jerusalem in the last hours of his life, there are 12 men, Jesus and the eleven. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying... They will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated, both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness because ye have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father, nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, Ye may remember that I told you of them. 
And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Amen Amen and amen. Now the next verses in John chapter 16 are of transcendent value in describing the ministry of the apostles, but we shall leave them for next Lord's Day by his grace, and we will back up and continue in our consecutive verse-by-verse study of John's gospel. Persecution is the issue. And so while we had a lesson about persecution down through verse 25, persecution takes up again in verses 1 through 4, with these two verses stuck in at the end of chapter 15 about the Holy Ghost, and he's already mentioned the Holy Spirit in detail in chapter 14, and we want to understand why these two verses are there, and we will momentarily. Let's remember the great men that were the apostles that were on the road with the Lord Jesus Christ here in John 15 and 16. They were great men. If you read the preparatory email sent to you yesterday, you think... Solomon was wise compared to the apostles. The apostles could answer any question, forget trees. I pity the poor man Solomon. He spoke of trees. The apostles could speak about any spiritual truth here in heaven, past, present, or future in any language. That was the apostles. You think Samson strong. I gave you illustrations and examples of the power and strength of the apostles. They could be in prison chained to four quaternions of soldiers. And the chains would loose themselves and the gates would open of their own accord. And Peter could just walk through them. He didn't have to carry them. He had power to move doors by the angel of the Lord. And so forth and so on. They could heal the sick. They could cause the seeing to be blind and the blind to see, and they did both. They could heal by their shadows and hankies. You think of Urim and Thummim, two stones that were put in the breastplate of Aaron, which when consulted could find answers for difficult questions. The apostles had that without carrying stones around in their pockets. The apostles could answer anything. They understood all mysteries. They understood things Solomon hadn't dreamed of. They understood things Aaron hadn't dreamed of. They were great men that God had endowed. And when you think of Samuel making intercession for Israel against the Philistines at Ebenezer, those apostles could make intercession and an earthquake would result and shake the place where they were. They did all kinds of great things. Paul could kneel on the deck of a ship with hundreds of passengers aboard in the midst of a storm where they hadn't seen the sun in two weeks. And deliver every single one and not a hair of anyone's head armed. And Paul could tell the captain of the ship that over there in the book of Acts, the last two chapters. They were great men. Their influence turned the world upside down in the opinion of their enemies. Their power that they had, the courage that they had, 
They weren't afraid of death. They weren't afraid of beating. When they were beaten by the Jews in Acts chapter 4, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and to have been beaten. When they were stripped naked, scourged, and put in an innermost prison, they sang and praised God. They were full of courage. They preached anywhere that God led them to preach. They would stand up in synagogues and declare the truth of the gospel to men that, by religion, hated Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The fruit they had, the truth they preached, the rank that God gave them in the church, the first gift of all, and the utility of the apostles is how you heard the gospel. That is the utility of the apostles bringing it to you by ordaining men that ordained other men that preach the gospel to you. We want to understand the 12 men that are on the road from Jerusalem to Bethany. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his 11 apostles at this time. But we come to verse 26. And the last lesson of chapter 15, only two verses long, and stuck in the middle of a longer lesson about persecution, is that Jesus promised Holy Spirit power to the 11. So verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Jesus had promised this Comforter earlier. Let's, drop, let's go back just two chapters to chapter 14, just to remind ourselves, those of you that read and, and review and, and think about sermons and preaching, you're familiar with these verses. But John 14 and verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And the emphasis there on identifying the comforter as the Spirit of truth is important, because what was it that caused persecution? Truth. Men hate truth. Men love lies. They hate truth. So there he is called the comforter, but then he's told, we're told in verse 17, that it's the spirit of truth. Verse 26, but the comforter, and here we appreciate this verse, which is the Holy Ghost. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ making it very plain and simple for us, whom the Father will send in my name. So that's already been presented in the few hours that Jesus had, the final hours that Jesus had with his apostles before he was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. Why did Jesus insert here at the end of chapter 15 these two verses about the Holy Spirit when it is persecution in verses 18 through 25 and it's persecution in verses 1 through 4 of the next chapter? He'd already made the promise of the Holy Spirit. Why did he bring it up again right here? Because the apostles were worried about a couple of things. Jesus was going to leave them personally. They weren't going to have him. They had relied on him. They weren't afraid of very much when he was around. Think of all he had done in their sight. He had led them through crowds of men that tried to kill him. In Nazareth, in Jerusalem, they couldn't touch him. He had calmed storms with just a word. He had multiplied a small lunch to feed many. He had healed all sort of diseases. He had cast out devils. They loved it when Jesus was around and he was leaving. And he was implying, he's going to get very specific here in chapter 16, that they were going to suffer 
incredible persecution for his sake. That because they, the Jews had hated him, Jesus, the Jews would also hate his apostles. So they were worried. Jesus is leaving us alone, and we're going to be punished. And they were still fearful because they did not have the blessing of the Holy Spirit yet. And so there's just a reminder plugged in right here. I am going to send you a comforter. I will not leave you comfortless. Okay? But at the same time, this comfort that I'm going to give you is the spirit of truth. And your ministry is going to be all about me. And because it's all about me, guess what's going to happen to you? Because of what they wanted to do to me and what they want to do to me and what they actually did do to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason the apostles would be persecuted was their testimony of Jesus Christ. But they wouldn't be left alone in recall of what Jesus had taught them or what they had seen him do or in declaring it. Jesus would give them the Holy Spirit to be able to declare it powerfully, persuasively, and in great detail. Delight of the apostles and damnation of the Jews was truth about Jesus by the Holy Spirit. It was to the damnation of the Jews and it was to the delight of the apostles to have such a blessing. The Jews hated Jesus for truth. Look at John chapter 8, a very interesting passage of Scripture. If we were to announce our church as having some ridiculous healing service, like the charismatics do, we would bust the property boundaries, not the building limitations, the property boundaries, as they do in the, is it now called the Bon Secours Center? I know they keep changing it every year because no one particular entity wants to pay the, the lease for that sign for very many years. But anyway, when Benny Hinn comes to town, people will flock to hear Benny Hinn because he's not going to say anything true. Jesus understood that. Jesus taught this to us in verse 45 of John chapter 8. Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. When we advertise truth, Bible preaching on a sign, on a website, in an advertisement in the paper for decades, because we're going to preach truth, no one cares. Because they don't care about truth. Because the Bible told us in perilous times they would turn their ears away from hearing truth to fables. So if we were to announce fables, they'll come. Jesus understood that and taught it, and that's why he's called the spirit of truth, because the ministry of the apostles was going to be all about truth. It wasn't going to be any fables. There was nothing in the apostles' ministry to tickle ears. There are men, everybody today wants to have their lust tickled. They have an itch in their ears. They want to have it scratched with the big Q-tip of fables. Anything. Preach to me about Nephilim. I want to hear about an angel, human, mongrel race that's on earth and is in politics. I want to hear junk like that because that makes me happy in my flesh. I can go sin and there's no condemnation. The spirit is grieved that I'm listening to such junk. And so I want more of that. It makes me happy but not the apostles. They were going to preach truth because he was the spirit of truth, not the spirit of fables. And we could go on and on with illustrations and examples of that. 
The Spirit would lead the 11 apostles to tell the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was going to bring the wrath of the Jews upon them. But it stuck in right here to remind them of the fact that they would not be left alone. Notice the very first words that he uses, but when the comforter is come, this comforter that I've promised to you that will come from the Father, whom I will send, because I'm not going to leave you comfortless, he'll be with you. And as you obey me, the Father and I will draw close to you and dwell with you and abide with you forever. So there was a great deal of comfort and there was a reminder. The ministry you're going to have is to preach about me. Therefore, preaching about me is going to cause this persecution. But I will be with you with the comforter. And so it's stuck in right here for comfort and for explanation as to why the Jews were going to hate them. Because they were going to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ, and did they ever. In Acts chapter 2, they stood up and preached about the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's all about him. It was all about him, and it should be all about him for us as well. They would shortly commence their ministries to do what by the Spirit? What does verse 8 say? When the Spirit has come, when this comforter, the Holy Spirit was the comforter to the apostles. The Holy Spirit was another word to everyone else. It's an R word. Can you find it in verse 8? A reprover. He's going to reprove the world. So these fishermen were going to stand up and unload on the world, on their religion, on their lifestyles, on their philosophy, on their practices, on their customs. And did they ever? That's what the book of Acts is all about. Just picture for a moment the Apostle Paul in Athens on Mars Hill with the philosophers that gathered there, and he unloaded on them. Because they were going to preach the truth, and they did preach the truth but it brought down the wrath of the Jews and the pagans upon them. The apostles' testimony of Jesus would be the last straw before he destroyed Jerusalem. And you read that last evening, I hope, in Matthew chapters 23 and 24. Peter and Paul are going to warn them. Peter on the day of Pentecost is going to say, save yourselves from this untoward generation. There was a destruction coming, and in his first sermon, you know what the Bible says in Acts 2.40? And he had a P.S. Does it say, and he had a P.S.? Or did he say, with many other words, did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation? Because he had already quoted from Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, that in verse 31, in Acts 2, 20, he said, the great and terrible day of the Lord come. The apostles, on the first day, being full of the Holy Ghost, preached about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In verse 20 of Acts 2 and in verse 40 of Acts 2, and they used many words to exhort believers on Jesus Christ to hear and be saved from what was coming. And hell was coming because they knew not the time of Jesus Christ's visitation to their nation. Whom I will send unto you from the Father. We're moving our way through verse 26. I will send from the Father. 
The Holy Spirit originated with the Father who gave the gift of His own personal presence to Jesus Christ to give to the church. And so we have whom I will send unto you from the Father. Notice it's a whom. It is not, does not fit here because the Holy Spirit is the person of God. Right. And I, I still hear some of you when you're praying refer to it like it's a force or a thing when the Holy Spirit is the person of God himself. Right. And we should refer to him with singular male pronouns. Here it is whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth. Turn back in John, since we learned this as well, back in chapter 7, to the promise that Jesus gave earlier, a number of months earlier, than this discourse with his apostles. John chapter 7. These are wonderful verses. And they tell us quite precisely about the gift of the Holy Ghost. And they're confirmed by Peter on the day of Pentecost. John 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Are you thirsty? Unfulfilled? Unsatisfied? Bored? Troubled? Frustrated? Irritated? Lonely? All those synonyms fill out the word thirst. Lacking in, a fellowship, in fellowship and relationship with God, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then in parentheses, we have an explanation. But this spake he of the Spirit. He wasn't actually talking about H2O. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. They hadn't received him yet. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. We began this morning with Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 that said, When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. Jesus was glorified when he ascended up into heaven one week before the day of Pentecost. One week before the day of Pentecost, he was crowned with glory and honor, according to Hebrews chapter 2, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 3, telling us that all angels, principalities, and powers were made subject to him. But that is when the Holy Ghost would be given. So when we come back to John 15 and verse 26, whom I will send unto you from the Father, that is going to be when Jesus is glorified. So that Peter would preach in the day of Pentecost, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. He hath shed forth this, which ye both see and hear. They could see the tongues of the cloven tongues of fire on the apostles' head, and they could hear them preach in all kinds of languages, though they were but Galileans. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. John 7 glorified. They equal each other. They're synonyms. Jesus glorified in heaven. Jesus exalted in heaven. God gave him spoils for his great success on the cross and his great victory, and he gave those spoils to the church. And that's what we have in John 15, 26, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth. 
I've already shown you in John 14 that the Holy Spirit's called the Spirit of Truth. When the Holy Spirit inspires a book, it's a book of truth. He's the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ who's the faithful and true witness. Everything we have from the Spirit of God is absolute truth. You may bet your little life on it. You may bet your eternity on it. On what the Holy Spirit declares in the Word of God because it's truth. He's the Spirit of truth. There's no fables. There's no lies. And we want to rightly divide the Word of truth by His help. Always pray for your pastor to rightly divide the Word of truth. That we will understand the truth given to us in God's precious word. Even the spirit of truth. It was his truth. The truth of the Lord Jesus Christ confirmed by miracles that exposed the hypocrisy of the Jews. So they're going to hate the apostles. Because the apostles are going to expose the hypocrisy of the Jews. More could be said on that. They're going to reprove the world, either Jew or Gentile, of hypocrisy, sin, and unbelief, as verses 8 through 11 of John 16 teach us. Let's go to the next words in John 15, which proceedeth from the Father. Allow me a minute to deal with a terrible heresy, which proceedeth from the Father. If we were to send our young men to seminary, what they could learn is, that the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father. Oh, no, he isn't. He proceeded one time, and that was on the day of Pentecost, from the Father to Jesus, who gave him to the church. I just showed you that in John 7. I showed you that in Acts 2. And there's only 20 to 40 other verses of Scripture that teach that. That's when he proceeded. He's not eternally proceeding. Please grab one of those red hymnals near you, called a Trinity hymnal. And turn to page 846. And let's read some ridiculous heresy. 846, page 846, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was put together by groupies of origin and stooges of Constantine, the emperor of the Roman Empire. They invented this damnable heresy to fit the square truth of Scripture into the round hole of Gnosticism. That's my one-sentence definition of the Spirit proceeding from the Father. I want you to go down to the bottom paragraph. This is the Nicene Creed. We don't quote this in our church. We just happen to have a Presbyterian hymnal, so we're stuck with this garbage in the back of it. The bottom paragraph, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, they don't mean that by the day of Pentecost. They mean that eternally proceeding. You say, show me. Okay, then let's look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Confession of the Presbyterians, and go to chapter 3. No, I don't want chapter 3. Well, go to chapter 3, then look up at the last paragraph of chapter 2. It's on page 850. At the very top, page 850 at the top, very top, I'm going to read paragraph 3 of section chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and just about all confessions of faith match this because they're all daughters of Rome. All these churches came out of Roman Catholicism and consider the Roman Catholic Church their mother church. We don't. We were never part of Rome. John the Baptist was never part of Rome. Jesus was never part of Rome, nor Paul, nor anyone in the true churches of Jesus Christ since them. 
In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I don't know how there's a Father or a Son in the Trinity. But anyway, we're not going to deal with sonship right now. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That's how they get a begotten God. Presbyterians, Catholics, and others believe in a begotten God. Our God is not begotten. Our God is, I am that I am. Our God has never said, I am what was begotten. The, The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. There it is. I wanted you to see it. Eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, just like the Son is said to have been eternally begotten. Jesus Christ our Lord, in His divine nature, is not begotten in any way, shape, or form. He is Jehovah. He is the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the Father. And the Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit has not been proceeding. The Holy Spirit is not like rays from a sun. The Holy Spirit is the Son. The Father can be the rays. It doesn't matter. It is in the mediatorial kingdom of Jesus Christ and in His relationship to us as our Savior that the Holy Spirit proceeds. Because the Holy Spirit, as the personal presence of God given to his church, was given to Jesus as spoils for his great victory on the cross and his resurrection from death, and then Jesus gave it to the church. That's the only time he proceeded. And he was already there anyway. All it was was a different manifestation of him that was given to the church. So much more could be said, but when you... You don't want to read a commentary on that clause I just read to you, which proceedeth from the Father. Unbelievable what you get for trusting higher education. You go go into the depths of hell. Forget all that. Oh, I waste time chasing these rabbits, but they're so pleasant to me. Any of you ever pull a trigger on a 10-gauge? Not 12, 10. 4-inch magnum? 8-gauge? Anyone ever pull a trigger in an 8-gauge? Somebody gets one, invite us. We just took the Word of God and unloaded on the Nicene Creed. In brief, in brief, but uh, how pitiful it is. The Bible is very clear about the procession. I showed you John 7. I've quoted to you Acts 2. I've shown you John 14. It's all there. It's in Acts 1. It's in Acts 8. It's in Acts 10. The gift of the Holy Ghost given by God to Jesus Christ, his personal presence, and then given to the church to empower these fearful apostles. He shall testify of me is the last clause of verse 25. The Holy Spirit will testify of me. He testified externally by the apostles. He testified externally by miracles. He testified internally to believers. He testified internally by confirming them in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He testified by empowering and inspiring the apostles to write scripture. He testified by inspiring those scriptures. The Bible gives all of this credit to the Holy Spirit of God for testifying of Jesus Christ. 
but he primarily brought to the memories of the apostles everything Jesus had taught them and gave them courage to preach it in any language about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to testify of Jesus Christ. He does not testify about the anointing. He testifies about Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, as given to the church, testifies about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is so much to do with Christ, he's called the Spirit of Christ in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4. And so we come to verse 27. And ye also shall bear witness. Now this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is going to only testify of Jesus Christ independent of the apostles, because he's going to testify in conjunction with the apostles, but that they would also have a unique role in bearing testimony to Jesus Christ because of what the rest of verse 26 says. Because ye have been with me from the beginning. They had anecdotal observations that they could share with anyone that they had eaten and drank with him after his resurrection. Did they ever pull stuff like that on audiences? They absolutely did. That's what Cornelius got to hear from Peter in Acts chapter 10 and other situations like that. To be an apostle, you had to have been with Jesus from the beginning in Acts chapter 1. The apostle Paul was one born out of due time, but he did see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ on numerous occasions. Jesus had appeared to him. Ye shall bear witness also along with the Holy Spirit, because ye have been with me from the beginning. They were eyewitnesses. They were ear witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we jump into John 16, do you have the identified testimony of the Spirit in you? It is not a light question. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Do you have the Spirit of God inside you bearing witness of Jesus Christ? That's what the Holy Spirit does. Remember in Ephesians, six chapters, two mentions, each chapter, 12 mentions of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. Romans 8, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. That's why we cry, Abba, Father. That is a one-on-one, -on -one, personal, intimate relationship. That is communication with God by His Spirit inside us. To the degree you're reading the Bible, seeking His face, walking with God, delighting in Him, confessing your sins, that testimony is loud. It is a clarion call. It is as bright as an airport searchlight. Right. It'll reach every nook and cranny of your heart. You will not be lonely, frustrated, or in doubt. You compromise, and that costs each of us that testimony of the Holy Spirit. Do you have that identified testimony in you? If a person is truly saved, they have an internal witness by the Holy Spirit about Jesus and God's love. If a person is truly saved, they have the power inside them to live a fruitful and productive life as a true Christian. Are you confident of eternal life? And do you have the evidence and assurance of it by spirit-produced fruit? Another question. Do you bear witness of Jesus to others? Do you desire to speak about Jesus Christ to others? Or are you ruled by this life like a belly worshiper? 
If you mind earthly things, if earthly things are what you think about, you're a belly worshiper. We have to think about earthly things to some degree, but it's always subordinate to our thoughts about God being behind all of it. Do you bear witness of Jesus to others? Do you desire to speak about him? Do you have experience with him and knowledge about him that you want to tell others about? Is there anything more important in your heart and mind to share with others than Jesus of Nazareth? What is it? Please tell me afterwards. So that I can be enlightened? No. So that you can be reproved. Try to tell me something afterwards that's more important for you to think about and talk about than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Even his 11 apostles are, I don't know, I guess I could say infinitely more important than the most important thing in your life. Let's come to John 16. John 16. We can't read those last two verses of John 15 and just look at them as having no bearing on us whatsoever because that comforter came 2,000 years ago and he's our comforter. He's our comforter now. His work in us is a little different than his work in the apostles, but he still has a work in us. That's why the Apostle Paul made those 12 efforts in the epistle of the, to the Ephesians for more of the Holy Spirit in their church and in their individual lives. John 16, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. Now Jesus uses the little phrase, these things, four times in rapid succession. He uses them right here in verse 3 and twice in verse 4, and he's referring to their coming persecution. Men, the ugly things I had to say in verses 18 through 25 of the previous chapter, though there were no chapters on the road to Bethany. You all understood, right? No chapters on the road to Bethany. Okay. Those things that I told you about persecution and hatred coming in your direction. Probably read it better than I can. He had warned them about coming persecution, and that's the these things that are mentioned here, opening up John 16. These things are right back to the last lesson in John 15. I'm I'm talking about a big lesson, the lesson of persecution coming that started in verse 18. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. Men, men, I've told you that it's going to get ugly for a reason. I don't want you to be offended when it happens. It's going to happen. I don't want you to be offended. To be offended in an intransitive way of this verb, in this usage, is to make a false step or stumble morally. This is the definition of to be offended. To make a false step or stumble morally. To commit a sin, crime, or fault. To fail in duty. To be AWOL. Man, I've told you that it's going to come to pass so that you won't go AWOL on me. That you'll know that it's coming, you'll be prepared for it, and you won't be surprised by it and want to quit due to discouragement because you don't know where it's coming from. So I'm telling you in advance. Jesus had taught the parable of the sower. The seed that fell on thorny ground hears the word of God and springs up with joy. But then the thorns grow up and choke it out. No, the stony ground springs up with joy and the sun shines on it 
and it withers away because it has no root in itself and persecution causes it to be, you want the word? It's right here, offended, offended. It means the persecution causes them to quit, to commit a fault, to go AWOL from the gospel that they heard and that they initially rejoiced in. The truth of the matter is, this night, while Jesus is speaking to them here in John 15 and 16, that night, they were all offended in Jesus Christ. But they really hadn't been persecuted yet. Because Jesus, in verse 1 here of John 16, is saying, I've told you about what's coming, because it was still future. It was years down the road. I don't want you to be offended when it's all focused on you. Because they all did get offended that night. Matthew 26 and verse 31 tells us they were all offended that night and they all ran away from the Lord Jesus Christ and left him alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, when Jesus said, you're all going to be offended at me this night, Peter promised Jesus that he would never be offended. And Jesus told him, you will certainly be offended and you will deny me three times before this night is over. Yet, Jesus prayed for Peter to be strengthened and to be helpful to the other apostles after he was converted again, which he did. And then when the Holy Spirit came, and they remembered everything Jesus had taught them with clear understanding, they weren't offended. They rejoiced that they were allowed to be beaten for his name in Acts chapter 4. And so the Lord's work worked in its proper place with the comforter, that he gave them. All the warnings of Scripture should keep us from being offended due to difficulties. Remember the martyrs that we heard about it a few years ago? Martyrs of the Dark Ages were comforted by prophecies in Daniel and Revelation to know that they were fulfilling Scripture. How can the Holy Spirit be a comforter when you give your life for Jesus Christ? Do you remember the martyrs? They considered it a great privilege, they rejoiced. They sang. It was the best day of their lives. They begged. They begged for the fire. They begged for the blade. They begged for the chains. Or they said, I don't need chains. Just stand me there. I'll stand there and burn. How did they do that? By the comforting power of the Holy Spirit. And it extended beyond the apostles, even to the martyrs of the Dark Ages. We had many testimonies read to us. And when you read about those martyrs, they died gloriously. We think, how can there be comfort in death? That's just terrible. That's so bad. Are you kidding me? That's the Holy Ghost taking the worst thing that can possibly happen to you and making it the best thing. That's, right. Amen. That's good news. That's good comfort. That's a real friend that can go with you through the curtain of death so that you can go through it gladly. Many today are discouraged and quit and consider quitting due to the widespread compromise in the churches. But we have a prophecy that tells us it was going to happen. Right. Why are you discouraged? God's chosen you for special times. We should rejoice instead. Verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Remember back in John chapter 9, the parents of the man born blind did not want to answer the Jews because they knew that the Jewish leadership had already ruled that if any man confessed Jesus Christ to be thrown out of the synagogues. The chief rulers in John chapter 
12, we learned there were chief rulers that believed on Jesus but wouldn't confess him openly because they'd be thrown out of the synagogues. The synagogue was a building in cities away from Jerusalem where the Jews could have the scriptures taught to them. There wasn't an altar. There wasn't necessarily priests unless the priest was there to teach. And they came from the Babylonian captivity. It was just an addition to the Jewish form of worship to have a building called a synagogue in cities away from Jerusalem where the scriptures were read every Sabbath day and there was teaching and they were used for some levels of schooling in between Sabbath days. That's where synagogue came from. It's only used once in the Old Testament in Psalm 74. And it, it was in existence well before John the Baptist because it was picked up in Babylon when they didn't have Jerusalem. There wasn't an altar. There wasn't a priesthood. So they built synagogues to have a place where they could go for corporate worship. Right. And for the Jews to be thrown out of the synagogue of their hometown would be terrible. So they were afraid. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Now the apostles were going to go from synagogue to synagogue preaching about Jesus Christ, which was Paul's method of evangelism, right. as Acts chapter 17 tells us. This was going to be terrible for them. They knew that the synagogues had the true scriptures being read in them and the true monotheistic religion of worshiping God Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. They shall put you out of the synagogues. This is Jesus warning his apostles. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Jesus had to warn his 11 apostles that they were going to suffer death for following him and for preaching the truth about him. You're going to die. That's serious business. You know, when someone wants to be baptized, we tell them that there's a cost to discipleship. But the cost for discipleship in our generation is light and easy. This is death for these ministers. They understood the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. That's why they didn't want to return to Judea in John chapter 11. Where in the world does such hatred come from that they would want to kill the apostles? Whom had the apostles ever wronged? Where does such hatred come from? It comes from the devil himself who moved Cain. The New Testament tells us that Cain killed his brother Abel by the devil's influence because Abel was righteous and Cain was wicked. That's the wicked killing the righteous because they're good. The perilous times of the last days include Christians being despisers of those that are good. Try to preach the truth to Christians today. Press them about truth from the Bible they will hate you for it, and they would kill you if they could. Just take a strong stand on something. And there's lots of things to take strong stands on today. Jesus had taught ten reasons why the Jews hated him, and the Jews would hate them as well. There is perpetual animosity between the righteous and the wicked. And it's not going away until the Lord Jesus Christ destroys all his enemies. And then there will be peace. These apostles were murdered first by the Jews and then by the pagans in the world. Acts chapter 7 is a whole chapter given to Stephen's final sermon to the Jews and their stoning of him to death. Acts 12, the first few verses, describe James, the son of Zebedee. James, how's he related to this writer? Brother. 
John's brother is going to be the first apostle to die. Peter, James, and John. They were fishermen together. James and John, the son of Zebedee. James gets taken out in 44 AD. We know that because of the Herod that did it. And when he went and, and had his speech and his relationship with these other neighboring political entities that are described there in Acts chapter 12. 44 years later, 14 years or so, James is killed. Peter and Paul were killed by Romans around 67 AD, but it becomes tradition when I say things like this. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, but when they came to crucify, the Romans came to crucify Peter, crucifixion was a Roman method of execution. Peter said he wasn't worthy to be crucified by the Lord Je like the Lord Jesus Christ, so crucify me upside down. Paul, according to tradition, had his head cut off in Rome. So Paul was beheaded, Peter was crucified. And I could go on and tell you the stories, the legends, the traditions about the other apostles, but I'm not going to because I don't want to, you to be distracted by things that are outside Scripture. What you can count on is this. They shall kill you, and they will think that they're doing God a service. Because that's what Jesus said right here. Nero, Diocletian, and other Roman rulers killed Christians for pagan and political reasons. But the Roman Catholics killed Christians for religious reasons. They will think that they're doing God a service. The Jews deceived themselves that Jesus Christ was a devil-possessed blasphemer. They did this against his perfect ministry, his perfect doctrine, his perfect life. And the greatest enemy that Jesus and Paul faced were the most conservative Jews, the Pharisees. And so we have this warning in John 16, 2, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Do you know it would have been hard to have been put to death by papal Rome, which means the inquisitors of the Roman Catholic Church when they did it in the name of Jesus. Do you know that would have made your skin crawl? Do you know that could have undermined your faith? By the authority of Jesus Christ, we burn you to death. Do you know what verse of scripture you would have appreciated then? In John 16, 2. All the word of God is precious. Amen. We want to remember every word of it because it will come to help us in the day we need it. There's comfort in that verse right there. And these things will they do unto you, verse 3, because they have not known the Father nor me. They're godless men. So don't worry about what name they use and they think they're doing God a service. They don't know God, the Father, and they don't know me. So don't worry about their words. Look at what they're doing to you. We never put anyone to death at the point of a sword in the way of evangelism or anything else. We may cast them out of the church, but we don't kill them. These things will they do unto you. That's the thing specified in the last part of chapter 15, and there in verse 2, about persecution and even dying for the cause of Jesus Christ because they didn't know the Father. The Jews, though they claimed intimate knowledge of Jehovah, didn't know him at all. They alone had his written revelation, the Bible tells us, but it did them no good. 
Because they didn't believe it. They didn't see the timed prophecies. They didn't see the fulfilled prophecies of Jesus Christ. They didn't see the times. It was so plain from Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy leading right up to the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry fulfilled so many prophecies. Blind, blind. Let us never be blind. Let us humble ourselves to every verse of Scripture, or He can and will blind us like He blinded them. Verse 4, But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. That's why He did it. Look at verse 1 again. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. I don't want you to be discouraged and go AWOL. I don't want you to be so overwhelmed and surprised by persecution, torture, and death, imprisonment coming, that you feel like quitting. So I'm telling you in advance so you won't be offended. It will not move you because I've told you. That's verse 1. Now here in verse 3, here in verse 4, I mean, the first half, the first sentence of verse 4, these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. When it starts happening to you, remember that I told you in detail. Family members are going to betray family members. Oh yes, Matthew 24. There's going to be false Christ. They're going to say they know Christ. And they're going to persecute you. It's going to come to pass. They're going to imprison you. They'll persecute you. They'll throw you out of the synagogues. They'll kill you. They're not winning. It's not a surprise. It's according to plan. Continue forward. And we're told what's happening around us right now in the world. Right. We have Romans 1 to tell us about the collapse of social, of sexual morals in America. The rewiring of America is Romans 1. The wholesale compromise of Christianity is 2 Timothy 3 and 4. It's there. We should embrace it, understand it, and not be moved. We should be excited that the Lord's chosen us for such a time. These things have I told you that when the time shall come and you start to experience these things of persecution and even death, ye may remember that I told you of them there is no surprise in heaven. We're not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. I'll take care of you. Go to, the, go to your death cheerfully by the power of the Comforter, just like I did. Second sentence of verse 4. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning. Men, we've been together three and a half years. I have not dealt in detail with these things, and I haven't told you very many times that you're going to die for my sake because I was still with you, and you might not have followed me. <laughs> you know, he didn't say on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, anyone want to die for the cause? He said, I'll make you fishers of men. Come follow me. And he said, I didn't tell you or stress it earlier on because I was with you. And while I was with you, you didn't have to be afraid of anything. And I remind you again that there were attempts made in our Lord's life during his lifetime when they were around him and he could walk through a crowd with them. And so you can understand the second sentence of verse 4 easily enough. Verse 5, but now I go my way to him that sent me 
And none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? Now, men, I've got to leave. I've been saying that to you for the last couple of hours, to us, the last few chapters. I've been saying that I've got to go away, and none of you are asking me where I'm going. Let's get the next verse to appreciate this point. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Men, you're all messed up. Why are you all so unhappy? Why aren't you asking me where I'm going? All you're thinking about is, what's it like to die? What's it like to die? You're sorrowful. You're worried about me leaving, and you're worried about dying. Why aren't you asking me where I'm going? Now, they had asked him. In John 13, Peter asked him, and in John 14, Thomas asked them. But they didn't ask enough, and they didn't ask for more details for the comfort that they could derive from knowing where Jesus was going. If they would have asked for more instruction about where Jesus was going, he would have filled them in on some details about their apartments in heaven. Remember their mansions from John 14? But they didn't ask enough because they were too worried about themselves. How are we going to function? How are we going to be able to handle it without Jesus? And I can hear every one of you saying it in different ways and me at times just about like that. How am I going to be able to do all this? No amens from this sister right now. I know, you know, and the Lord knows. They don't need to know. I can't do it all. Ever said junk like that? You can do it all. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Just pick up the next bun and cut it, is what I would say to my children. But here the Lord Jesus Christ is is pushing them a little bit. Men, you're sorrowful, and I understand about persecution and death, but why aren't you asking me where I'm going? Because if you would get your minds off your circumstances in this world and on what I'm going to do for you, you wouldn't really care about dying. In fact, you'd be like Paul. Bring it on. I'm ready. I would much rather depart this world. It's better to depart and to be with Christ than to be here in this world. You're not focusing on the right things, men. They had asked, but they hadn't asked enough. And they weren't asking again. Right at this moment, they should have said, Lord, back, back there an hour ago, when you said that you were going to prepare a place for us, would you tell us a little bit more about that place? While you're preparing it for us, what are you going to be doing while you're up there with the Father? And you said you're going to come back for us? What's it going to be like when you come back for us? Will you be there to meet us when we die? Is there a chance, Lord, that when we're about to die, we're going to have a vision of heaven and you're going to be standing at the right hand of God welcoming us into heaven like he did for Stephen? Are you with me? That's what they should have been doing. What should we be doing? Instead of talking about, well, I've got this problem. I've got this problem. I've got that problem. How am I going to get through all this? And then I get to die. How am I going to get through all this? We need to go with the Word of God. Do you know what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18? Wherefore, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What words? About our circumstances? No. For the Lord shall ascend from heaven with a shout, 
and with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I left out the clouds. It's wonderful. That's what we ought to be doing. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. Man, I've been comforting you, but the look on your faces is very sorrowful. Is dying all that bad? Is it all that bad? No. It's going to sleep in Jesus. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's verses 5 and 6. So there's more that could be said and more that wanted to be said. Verse 7, very quickly. Nevertheless, in spite of what you think, in spite of you not wanting me to leave, in spite of you thinking that dying is terrible, in spite of you being sorrowful, I tell you the truth. I want to lay some truth on you right now, men. My 11 apostles, I want to tell you the truth. It's expedient. They couldn't see it yet. They couldn't see the benefit of having the Holy Spirit. It is expedient. It is good and profitable for you that I leave. Let me go. Help me go. It is expedient for you that I go away. It's good. It's profitable. It will help you. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. If you will let me go to heaven, if I go to heaven and leave you here alone, I will send the Comforter, because that's the order that I've given you today. That's the proceeding from the Father to the Son to the church. The Comforter will come. So it's expedient for you that I go away. I need to go through death and resurrection and ascension to receive the spoils of victory at the right hand of God and to share them with you. So nevertheless, in spite of what you're thinking, in spite of you being sorrowful, I'm telling you the truth. It's really a good thing for me to go away. You've got to believe that today, because we can't see the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a good thing that we can't see him. Because if we could see him, where wouldn't he be? He wouldn't be at the right hand of the Father. He's making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father, and we want him right where he is. And he comes to us by his Spirit. We have him and we have his intercession. We have his presence, his love, his fellowship, and his friendship by the Holy Spirit of God in us, which is better than his personal presence near us. And his personal presence is in heaven, making intercession for us and able to save us to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Nevertheless, men, I tell you the truth. I know you're sorrowful, but it is better that I go away It's expedient for you. It's going to profit you and benefit you if I leave. Because if I don't go away, the comforter's not coming. Because I have to get to the Father to get the rewards of my victory. When I get those rewards, I'll give them to you. But if I depart, I will send them unto you. Do you you understand all this comfort? The apostles could have elbowed each other. You know, the Lord's gone now. When When they watched him ascend up into heaven... He's gone. What are we going to do now? The Jews can crush us. What are we going to do? Wait a minute. He said it was expedient that he goes away. He's going to do something big. He said power is going to come upon us. We're just supposed to wait here in Jerusalem. And so they held on. They held on because of the word of God. 
are you holding on because of the word of God? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word of God has many promises for us. And if we'll read them, remind each other of them, review them, think about them, they're all the comfort we need. They're all the power we need. We can do everything expected of us by Jesus Christ and bear much fruit in the world. Those 11 men, 50 days later, were drastically, violently changed. And we can and should be drastically, violently changed by the same power of the same Spirit in us to bear much fruit and to do everything Jesus expects of us while we're in this world. He's coming for us just as he promised he would come again and receive them unto himself. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.